The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. What's up, guys? Bill Amadeo of McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates. And um, I guess we'll start with some sad news today. Just got a link from uh, my friend Joe Latorsky, close friend and 24-year-old Pittsburgh Steeler quarterback Dwayne Haskins is dead. Just, you know, it's hard to believe when somebody just passes so far behind quarter time. You know, this season, I really thought Haskins had a chance to prove himself. Big Ben had just retired. Looked like he was going to be given an opportunity. I remember Haskins at Ohio State. He had um, so much ability, and it didn't work out with the Redskins. I always had my thoughts on that. You know, you get a young kid, he's in the NFL, maturity needs to come into play. But he showed flashes of brilliance. And what I'm told is he was really a hard worker with the Steelers. And now at 24 years old, he was training in South Florida and he's gone. Just really makes you wonder. And our condolences to David Hertzkowitz's family and Natalie. They lost a great leader of their family. It's a sad time. It really is. And hopefully today could add a little humor to some things. I haven't been doing lives much lately and people have been upset about that. Got so many trials going on. And there's so many things that are going to trial that should not be going to trial. It's always sad when a prosecutor cares more about a conviction rate than justice. But we're seeing that in different counties right now. And uh all I can say is this, guys. If you can't get a fair deal, you go to f***ing war for your client. You go to trial, you fight like hell to get justice. If you don't get justice because a jury has a problem, you create so many appealable rights to make those prosecutors have eagle in their face. Being a prosecutor is not about a conviction rate. It's about protecting the community. I think a lot of people have lost sight of that. And there's some prosecuting offices I admire so much. And there are some that I'm so disgusted with right now. And I'm not going to name names. But I will say this. We're all working in the criminal justice field. And it's kind of sad that that feeling, that thought is just being pissed away. But we'll do what we have to do. I know what I have to do in my cases. And I promise you I'll do it. This is your cell. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. I had a preliminary examination two weeks ago. It was an interesting one. It was one actually got dismissed at the prelim stage. For you criminal defense lawyers, you know, getting a case kicked at a prelim stage is really a unique thing. It's happened to me now, um, I think 10 times in my career, which is a pretty high number. Because at the preliminary examination stage, all the prosecutors to do is show probable cause. Quite often, I feel like running a prelim is a waste of time, especially with a child, alleged child victim. Either that child has truly been a victim or they're lying. Either way, they don't need to deal with my bullshit on cross-examination and the preliminary examination. 
things go to trial, they go to trial. But I go after cops, I don't play after kids. And this was an interesting one, because this young woman was 21 years old. And it got kind of humorous. She claimed she knew the date that this happened. And this is not Washtenaw County or Shiawaskia. Let's be clear on that. This is a different county. I'm not going to mention the judge's name, but I will mention the scenario. So she says it happened on January 12th. And I had text messages from her and my client on that day. And it showed that she was not actually there where she claimed to be on January 12th. Things got really weird there. So I said, can you explain why your text messages, which these are your text messages, correct? Yes. Okay. Explain why these text messages say you're not even at his place, but yet you claimed you were assaulted at his place that day. And she screamed at me, and I quote, I ain't a holler back girl. It's like, excuse me? She goes, I ain't a holler back girl. And I said, what does that mean? And prosecution objects. It's irrelevant. He should not be able to ask this question. I said to the judge, Your Honor, in fairness, I know the song, but I don't know what a holler back girl is. And she just said she is not a holler back girl. I think we need some clarification on what a holler back girl actually is. And the judge goes, Well, yeah, good point. I'll allow it. So I start getting the details. I said, Okay, so you said you're not a holler back girl. Are you talking about the Gwen Stefani song? Howard Batgirl. Uh, yes, I am. Okay. Do you know those lyrics? She goes, well, I kind of do. So I could put it on my computer right now, pull up Spotify, we could put the lyrics up. So the prosecutor's getting really pissed off. And I said, listen, if she says she's not a Howard Batgirl, we need to clarify what exactly that means. And I said, Your Honor, if you were to bound this over, her being a Howard Batgirl maybe lead to a motion to quash or it may lead to a dismissal here to oh, you're right so we're literally we're playing holler back girl in this district court and i'm breaking it down she recanted case dismissed so i kind of feel like well it was a nice win thank you gwen stefani because i i still not 100 percent sure what a holler back girl is but apparently her argument for why she wasn't lying is because she's not a hollerback girl and you weren't there on January 12th and you knew for a fact you were there on January 12th. I don't know. Thanks, Gwen. Good looking out. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. I want to talk about crosswalks. Do these things really help? And I'm going to explain my transition from Jersey to Michigan on this. Because in Jersey, lights were kind of optional, you know what I mean? Where we grew up, and John Totoro and Tara Twenty and other people in the area, they could attest to this. On Mississippi Avenue, you just ran, you know? Green light didn't matter, red light. You saw an opportunity, you ran across the street, right? That's what we did. And the lights were more like suggestions. Later in time, 
these crosswalk things came up. And yesterday, I'm driving to the gym. And I'm going to meet Adam's son at 3 and one Fitness. And I'm just... I drop off my clothes to dry cleaning. I'm headed down to 3 and one And there's this guy. Here's the crosswalk, right? And he's like three feet ahead on the sidewalk. And as I'm driving, not at a really fast pace, he jumps into the crosswalk. I slam on the brakes. And we're just staring at each other. He kind of starts like dancing and shaking. And he screams at me, I'm in the crosswalk. Now, where I come from, usually we'll get in confrontations when you're in a car. Uh, you know, if some lunatic has a gun or a knife. I mean, I want to say to him, it's not really the point of the crosswalk. But I also realize this guy may be intoxicated. I don't know what's going on. He's jumping in the middle of a moving car. And let me explain something to you, sir, that walked into the crosswalk. If my 5,000-pound piece of machinery hit you, you're not going to win. I don't want to hit anybody. But why are these f***ing crosswalks coming into play? Like, couldn't we just have the lights? Like, red light? Go! But here's these crosswalks. And these people jump into these crosswalks. They do it with such arrogance. It's like, I'm in the crosswalk. What are you going to do about it? Okay, well, number one, if it's snowing out, you can't even see the goddamn crosswalk, right? So you're in the crosswalk. This guy literally jumped from the side of the road into the crosswalk in front of my moving car. Is this on me? Now, luckily, I'm paying attention. Slam on the brakes. He's dancing. I'm staring. He's yelling. I'm confused. I'm also waiting for him to approach the car. You know, I'm like, get ready. The fist is clenched. Because to me, it's like, why would somebody who's not crazy jump in front of a moving car just because there's technically a crosswalk there? Help me out with this. Tell me how these crosswalks... How are they helping anybody? I don't get it. Now, you know what else bothers me? You know those, like, blue urinals at, like, construction sites and all? And this comes back to my baseball days. Maybe out in Vineland or something, right? Be playing baseball in Vineland. Vineland was always a hostile environment. But you had to go... You had two options to use the bathroom when you were playing ball in Vineland. You could either go in the woods... Or you could go inside one of those blue urinals. For whatever reason, those blue, blue urinals, they were locked up. Like, we're not going to let anybody go into these urinals. I don't understand that. I don't understand why you go to the bathroom in the gym and there's like eight urinals. Why somebody's got to come up next to you. You know, like, we don't... <laughs> but I digress. You know, for those people that still think I'm not crazy. Let's talk about dogs. There's a reason why dogs are called man's best friend. Um, a dog is the most amazing companion you can ever have. You know, they are just, they're there for you. They got your back through the good and the bad. And I will say, I think dogs quite often take on the personalities of their owners. A.K.A. their parents. 
And they also take on the personality of the environment. I'm going to talk about some of my old dogs. And I'll talk about some of the new ones. And I will say this. The personality of the Atlantic City dogs was slightly different than the personality of the Ann Arbor dogs. Now, in AC, it was kind of a rough environment. And we always had dogs. And dogs would protect our home. In Ann Arbor, the dogs go to the salon. In Atlantic City, they're trying to survive. In Ann Arbor, they're trying to get their nails done. And I love Teddy so much. Jewel loves Teddy. Teddy loves Jewel more than he loves me. That's very clear. With that being said, the Golden Retriever in Washington County has a slightly different lifestyle than the rescue dog in Atlantic City. Let me be clear on that. Let's talk about some of the dogs. My first dog was Major. Major was an old German Shepherd who was a rescue dog. Oh, man. Absolute badass. And I remember I was six years old and we had to put Major down. And here's something kids today don't quite understand. Death is sadly part of life. And while I don't have children at this point, I always feel a child should have an animal for a couple reasons. One, the animal gives that child unconditional love. Animals are so much cooler than people. I'll stand by that. Two, you can use the animal as almost a therapist. It's not just your friend, it's your confidant. And the fact that a dog cannot talk, they have to express their love with actions. My aunt always said, actions speak louder than words. There's something special there. And then here's part of what growing up's about. When the animal passes, and you have to understand something, when you have a commitment to a dog, you're only going to get them for a short time. The best of situations, 20 years, right? So you got to make that dog's life special. But when that dog passes, you learn about loss. You learn how to cope with loss. You know, it helps you become a man or a woman. Animals are so special in that regard. And Major was such a great dog. Um, we were in the hood in Atlantic City, okay? And this dog, old with arthritis, he would take a bullet for our family. He was such an amazing protector. He taught me about courage at the age of five. He was special major. And he was the first animal I ever had to put to sleep. And there was something about major and putting major down, which hurt so bad, but I think in some ways it's always helped me help loved ones get through death. I knew he had to go, and I knew at the end it was more about him not being in pain anymore, and that was a tough thing for a six-year-old to deal with. I had known Major my whole life. I still think about Major on a regular basis. Such a great animal. You know, and after Major died, you kind of didn't want another dog, you know? And there's two schools of thought on this. When the dog, who is such a part of your life, and the dog's like your child, let's be clear. When they pass, you go through two stages. One is that you don't want another dog because you don't want to hurt that bad again. 
The other is that you want another animal to give that love to. There's so many great dogs that need homes. And uh, I remember after Major, it was really, you know, you're depressed, you don't want another dog, but then came Odie. Odie, <laughs> he was an Atlantic City mutt. He was beaten, he was abused, and he escaped brutality, and we found him beaten by Patsy Wallace Jim on Willow Avenue, Atlantic City. And I took him home. Took him to the vet, the little money we had back then. Got him feeling good again. And if you ever watched the um, cartoon Garfield, Odie is the dog. Always has his tongue out. And that was Odie. Always had his tongue out. And we named him Odie. I mean, this poor dog was beaten to hell. And we ended up giving him a great life. And Odie lived a good long life. And he was such a tough dog. You know, when he was like four, he looked like he was 40. He was really an aged dog, like an old man from day one. Aunt Mary used to say, Odie, you're so ugly, you're cute. He was a special animal. And uh, he actually passed away. I think it was my it was freshman year of college. He was tough, man. He was tough. And he was so Atlantic City. Before Odie died, we found his best friend, Scruffy. Now let me be clear about these two. Scruffy was this little tiny Maltese terrier. And somebody left him on Mississippi Avenue tied to a pole. And he was crying and I'm walking home. I see this poor dog. I started asking people in the hood, is this your dog? Now it's not our dog. I take him home, he had a leash, and um, took the leash off the pole, and he followed me home like he knew me his whole life. Now Scruffy was this tiny little guy, right? Had a real attitude problem. He thought he was stronger than he was. He was very arrogant. He believed he was very intelligent. For whatever reason, I was very connected to him. <clears throat> So, when I took him home, Odie was not thrilled about this at first. In fact, Odie wanted to kill him. Because Odie wanted all our attention. But then those two bonded. They were very close. And uh, when we went to put Odie down, Scruffy knew it. And he was so devastated. He was like hiding in the corner. I think animals, in some ways, are so much more intelligent than people. They could feel things, you know, that we just... We take for granted or we overlook, but I mean, here's this little tiny dog. And he was tough as nails. I always said my aunt loved Scruffy more than me. Now, my aunt raised me. I owe my aunt everything. I miss Aunt Mary every day. But I asked her one day um, if Scruffy and I were drowning, who would you save? And she goes, Well, Billy. You're smart enough to try to survive. I gotta save Scruffy. And I said, Aunt Mary, let me just ask you. As we were living in the house, I bought her. Who do you love more? Do you love me or Scruffy more? She goes, Well, honey, listen, it's a different type of love. You can just be real with me, Aunt Mary. She's all right. I'm sorry. I choose Scruffy. All right. 
and Struffy knew that she chose him, and he was very arrogant about this. I love Struffy. He was just a really unique little guy. He was uh, he lived a really long life, and it was funny how his personality changed. He was like a real tough as nails, grumpy little guy. I could tell you stories about how I saved him when I was going to get killed when I was a kid. I've mentioned that before. He was just so unique, so tough. But when we moved to the suburbs, his personality changed a little bit. Started having a little bit of money. Um, he, when we moved to the suburbs, he started changing his personality. Like, he became a bit of a snob. Um, you know, making some money in the casino, saving up for law school. Aunt Mare starts taking him to the salon. And he was quite the ladies' man. He'd go to the beauty parlor, be one of the few guys there. He saw that little tough elixir to the edge. And he was fixed, but he had quite a number of girlfriends. As he aged and moved to the suburbs, he took to that lifestyle, man. And the ladies loved Scruffy. I remember there'd be big dogs that Scruffy would be, like, on dates with almost. It was really interesting. I always admired him. Like, wow. You know? It gave hope to the short men of the world to date older women. He was... He was something. It's amazing how connected we are to dogs There's two other Atlantic City dogs I'll talk about and then we'll flip into the suburban dogs Cutie Cutie was a stray she was one tough dog Siberian Husky there was a family that lived next to us and they left Cutie and Duke behind we got both Cutie and Duke um, and I guess Cutie and Duke were kind of in a relationship. They're both fixed, but they kind of viewed themselves like they were a couple. Cutie looked terrifying. Like, she was 120 pounds, pure muscle, and she looked, like, people were terrified looking at Cutie. But she had the sweetest disposition you ever could imagine. Duke, on the other hand, tough little Doberman. Small. Duke would kill somebody. We were once being robbed. And Cutie, with her muscle, at that point, we had Odie, who is older now, Little Scruff, Cutie, and Duke. We had four dogs. Duke was a killer. You know, he was beaten, and we couldn't even, like, pet him he loved us. He would take his food. He would go away. But he protected the family like none other. He was a badass Duke. Cutie was the muscle. Odie had some, you know, fire. Scruffy thought he was tougher than everybody. And when they were getting robbed, and it was a unified front, man. I was protecting the family, but those dogs really saved the day. They were much better protecting my family than I was. I tried, but man... Duke was something special. It was weird. When Cutie died, Duke wasn't far behind. Like, that was his soulmate. And I always felt bad because Duke couldn't connect with many people. And um, the one individual he connected with was Cutie. 
and you learn something about that relationship. You know, it's important to have connections in life. But when you only connect with one person, when that one person's your whole goddamn world, and that person passes, you gotta make it on your own. And I always, you know, I look at my mom and my grandma's situation like that. I won't get too much into that today. But I think of Cutie and Duke. Duke could not survive without Cutie, and it's really sad. Because he really was a great dog. He went through some shit in his life before he came to our world. Such an amazing protector. I always felt bad he kind of died of a broken heart after Cutie passed away. But those dogs at Atlantic City, man, they had edge. They had fire. They embraced the environment. Um, they just embraced everything and they protected. They were grateful that they had food and shelter and love and they would lay their life on the line to protect you. And then we talk about the Ann Arbor dogs. Now let me start by saying this. We've had three golden retrievers. And I love my golden so much. It's quite possible that Max is my favorite animal of all time. You know, um, Max, let me tell you about Maxie. Poor Max was dumb as a rock. Max was found walking down Pennsylvania Avenue in Lansing. He was beaten, he was abandoned. And Max came into my world. And from day one, Maxie and I were connected. Now, there were confusing things about Max. Max by no means was a rocket scientist. Um, he would always tangle his leash. Like, you could offer him a piece of food, and he would walk around the other way to get it instead of just taking it from your hand. Wasn't bright. But he was special. And the last few years of his life, so I with Kara in a nice apartment in Lansing. Yeah, and we would play with the tennis ball. Oh, God. Jules about the tennis ball. So I would take a tennis ball, right? And if you know Teddy, Teddy's like a world-class athlete. We'll get to him. Teddy does this thing with the balls where he brings the ball back and he runs for another one. He jumps in the air. Teddy is like very exceptional athlete. Max was not. We throw a tennis ball to Max, right? He'd be all excited. He'll get the ball. He would jump on it and run back without the ball. It was very confusing. He was, he was a tough dog. He went through some stuff in his life. However, last few years, like if he sneezed, Kara would take him to the vet. He started going to the salon. He became the true suburban dog. He took to the good life the last few years of his life. And I would say that if there was an intruder coming into the house... Max would try to help. He, um, one holiday, and Joe Latarski, a good friend of mine, he loved Max. They were, like, bonded. And I think it was Thanksgiving or something. And we put, like, a cheese board out. 
we're watching like a football game and Max takes the all the food and just he jumps up on the table and just eats it all. Max loved to eat. What he adored me, but I think more than anything he loved eating. That dog, the day we had to put him down, he was eating treats up to the moment. He was so special. And at the end, when he couldn't climb up the stairs anymore, I would sleep downstairs with him. He expected that. Max knew more about me than anybody. If Max wrote a memoir about Bill Amadeo, I'm sure I'd have a lot of questions to answer. Um, he knew so much stuff. He never went out on me. I appreciate that, Max. I can't remember ever having a bad day with Max. And it was so devastating when he passed. But he was either 15, 16, or 17. They couldn't quite tell based on his teeth. He lived a good life, man. That those last few years, he was so happy. And like I said, Maxie had some courage. And after Max died, I was just so devastated. And then we got Charlie. Charlie was a sweet guy. But if an intruder came into the house, Charlie would ask him for a treat or to play with a toy. Charlie didn't quite have that inner city edge that Maxie had. Charlie went to daycares, went to the beauty salon, had his group of friends. Um, and Chucky, that was his nickname, Chucky was about Chucky. Love him so much. We lost him after only two and a half years, two years, and lost him way too early. It was a horrible stomach situation. He was such a sweet boy. Um, not that he goes by, I don't think about Chucky. But when we talk about Edge, talk about the difference between Atlantic City dogs and Ann Arbor dogs, Chucky was born into Ann Arbor. He got kicked out of daycare a couple times for biting um, the wall. He had his own world. It was almost as if it was Chucky's world and we just had to deal with it. My career is taken off at this point. However, every Tuesday and Thursday at 3 o'clock, I had to take him out for a walk and play with him and do this and do that. And he didn't really care. He had needs. Instead of putting him in a kennel if we went on a trip, we hired people to come to the house because he didn't like to travel. One night, we stayed at a hotel. forget why. It was in Lansing a power outage in the city or something so we're staying at a hotel that allowed dogs and chucky kept waking us up i want to leave it was chucky's world man we just lived in it during the eric coleman trial chucky was great he always appreciated my practice he listened carefully as he was giving treats he just he was a special guy. But Protector, yeah, I'm not going to go on that one. He wasn't a good Protector. Which leads us to Teddy. Mm, I love Teddy so much. And he prefers my wife. That's clear. Teddy is a sweet boy. So far, Teddy has attended Metamora for Smart Dog. 
He goes to the salon once every two weeks. He hangs with his Aunt Aza, which is called the First Family of Washington. Like, model-like looks, and would be the guy that would, like, lead the league in passing and get all A's in school, but potentially burn down the house by putting tin foil in the microwave. On New Year's Day, he ran away because some guy had bacon on him. We had to go find him. Special, special guy. I think of all of them, he is the nicest. Um, I think he's definitely the nicest of the three. Like, Max was my boy. He was just connected to me. He understood me. And he was nice. Charlie was nice. But it was about Charlie's world. Teddy just loves his family. He's all embraced in it. Amazing athlete. He does things with that tennis ball like you could not believe. I mean, he just, he's got skills. And he, he's analytical in some ways, but if there was an intruder coming in the house, he would lead them to the bedroom. He's just not quite that edge. I couldn't see him getting in a fight. Um, we took him to the dog park one day, and he was just assaulted without even putting up a fight. You know, and he was crying when the dog was jumping on him. And I'm looking at him like, okay, but Max would have tried to fight. Chucky would have tried to make friends with them. Teddy was scared. Odie would have bit the shit out of him. Duke may have killed him. I would have been facing criminal charges. Cutie would have muscled him. Scruffy would have tried to attack. Major would have handled business. All different animals, you know? All amazing in their own ways. But dogs are, they're unique, man. Very unique. Um, very happy with Teddy. But I would be lying if I said Max was not the gold I was most connected to. But when we see the suburban dogs versus the Atlantic City dogs, we see a stark contrast in personalities. Those Atlantic City dogs, they were tough dogs. Those Ann Arbor dogs were nice dogs. You know, if they were at, like, a family reunion where, you know, they were all sitting down eating a feast, um, I could see Scruffy and Odie talking a lot of shit about Teddy and Charlie. Max and Major being the two old guys, they'd connect a little bit. Cutie and Duke would be staying by themselves, like, texting trash about each other. The Von Eric family. As many of you know, I love old school wrestling. I don't really like new wrestling at all, but the old school stuff was always special to me. Let me break that down a little bit. Where we grew up, and we didn't have many channels, and the only wrestling on was basically WWF, which is today WWE. We would get um, NWA, one hour on Saturday on WPHL 17. The New Jersey Network, which is one of the few channels we had, which was like a kind of a cheap version of NBC. For whatever reason, world-class championship wrestling came on. And world-class wrestling was special. And it would come on either... 
real early on Saturday morning or real late on Saturday night. Fritz von Erich, who was the founder of the von Erich family, he must have had contracts. He didn't really go national, but we used to watch world-class championship wrestling from Texas. Dallas, the Sportatorium, excuse me. And the Von Erichs, was something special about them. Now, there were a few things that kind of got to me about the Von Erichs. Um, number one, number one was that they had such charisma about them. There was something special about them. And they were not without their problems and certainly not without their tragedy. But there was something different. There was something more powerful about them than WWF. Like, I know Hulk Hogan was marketed so beautiful. But, you know, there was just something really unique about the Von Erich family. And if you ever watched The Curse of the Von Erichs on ESPN, Bill Apter for the Apter Mags, he is like one of the commentators. And I always thought Bill Apter was kind of overrated. I mean, he's kind of biased to them, and I respect that in some levels. I'm a Von Erich fan. But I don't think Apter would have been the one. I would have rather heard Jim Cornette or somebody like that, or Bill Mercer or David Manning, somebody who actually was in the know commentating. And if you're an old-school wrestling fan, some of those names I mentioned, you know. But the Curse of Von Erichs was kind of sad. It was like an ESPN 30 for 30 short. Then there's Dark Side of the Ring. And on Dark Side of the Ring, they do an amazing job with that program. It's kind of a documentary about hidden things in the wrestling business from back in the day. And you learn a lot about the tragedy of the Von Erichs. Um, to talk about the Von Erich family, Fritz was the father. He was the one that created the Von Erich dynasty, if you will. But the first star that came out was David Von Erich. And David Von Erich was this amazing talent. He was going to be the NWA heavyweight champion at a very young age. Um, there was something about him. He was so talented in the ring. Great on the mic. They say Kerry was the best looking of the group. David was the most talented. Kevin kind of had a combination thereof. But here's David. And he is just special. And he goes on this trip. He was to Japan. And there's mixed rumors on this. What happened? Did he have a stomach issue with the sushi he ate? Did he overdose on drugs? But David Von Erich was taken from us way too early, and he died. And sadly, this was going to be the first of many tragedies that was going to be bestowed upon this poor Von Erich family. In my mind, when David died, things were never quite going to be the same. When we look back on history. Because then we have Carrie Von Erich. Carrie was the bodybuilder. He was like the male model. He was the one that the girls loved older Von Erichs, but Carrie was the favorite. And when David died, Carrie ends up beating Ric Flair for the NWA Heavyweight Championship. They weren't sure they were going to put the belt on Kevin or on Carrie. And things really went bad for Carrie. Um, he had drug problems. He got in a motorcycle accident. I think he lost his foot. And he still wrestled. And things just really took a downward spiral for him. Uh, years later, after having so much success, when world-class championship wrestling went to a really tough spot financially, 
Um, Kerry went to WWE, and it just wasn't. There were drug issues, there was depression issues, and Kerry ends up killing himself. So now we have two brothers who are gone. One somewhat suspicious, was it an overdose or was it just a tragedy? I like to believe it was just a tragedy. I don't think David Von Erich overdosed. That's my opinion. Say I'm biased. Carrie, um, you know, sad. He was doing a lot of stuff. He was looking at potentially some prison time for prescription drugs. And he killed himself. Then there's Kevin. Kevin Von Erich is the only Von Erich from these brothers that's still alive today. Um, Kevin partied a lot. He'll be honest about that. But he seemed to have a really good head on his shoulders overall. You know, he ran the family business. He certainly was strong mentally. Because of all the tragedy going on around him. You know, he survived. His sons are wrestling today. And I know he sold the world-class library to WWE, so I hope he's doing okay financially. But Kevin once said in interviews, and it was mentioned on Dark Side of the Ring, I believe, but he said in a couple interviews, a couple shoot interviews, and for you guys that know what a shoot interview is, a shoot interview is when a wrestler tells the behind-the-back story, what was going on in the 70s and 80s. And um, Kevin, there's this one line that just sticks out to me. He goes, I lost all my brothers, and I'm not even a brother, because all his brothers are dead. And he had to deal with a lot of that, you know, to be the last Von Erich. Mike Von Erich, and I know Pat just said that Mike and Chris should have been commentators. I think Mike was a good talent. Um, I think he was a really good talent. But he had, like, toxic syndrome, and his temperature went up to, like, 107 one day. And he was never quite the same person. Eventually, um, Mike, who had some talent in the ring and showed a lot of potential, he kills himself. Then there was Chris. Chris Von Erich was the smallest of the Von Erichs. He really didn't have the body to be a professional wrestler, but it was his dream to be a pro wrestler. And he kept getting hurt. And... The depression of losing all his brothers just kind of got to him. And uh, then he ended up killing himself. So, Carrie, Mike, and Chris all commit suicide. David dies under somewhat mysterious circumstances. Kevin's still alive. There was so much talent with the Von Eric family. But there was also so much tragedy. And they were special. Some of the coolest memories I have of being a poor kid in Atlantic City was late at night or early in the morning watching world-class championship wrestling. And I always believed if Fritz von Erich would have taken world-class national, life might be very different today. Say what you want about Vince McMahon. He's a businessman. He was always a businessman. He would cut people over the knees and do this. There used to be, like, gentlemen's agreements that you stayed in your own territory. And Fritz kind of did that. Vince didn't. 
it wasn't just the Von Eric family. It was a lot of tragedy around world class. Uh, Chris Adams is gone. Gino Hernandez is gone. There was a dark side of the ring about that. A lot of tragedy, but what an amazing time period. I'm going to say from like 1984 to 1986, world class was top of the game. 87, 88, things just kind of collapsed. And as things collapsed, tragedy just kept ensuing and ensuing. So always have a slow spot in my heart for the Von Eric family. They were special. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. So my first day in Michigan, I had my car broken into, windows smashed, and a watch was taken. (laughs) It was going to be a sign of things to come. But, you know, you're in law school. And our class, I think, had like 1,250 people. It was crazy. At the time, it was the largest law school class in the history of law schools. And I remember Dean Paul Zielinski, he said, look to your left, look to your right, because only like three or 400 of you are going to graduate. And that was interesting because I just left bartending at Tropicana and I'm in Lansing now. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to make it through. And we had this like two day orientation. It was called Jumpstart. And you coolites from back then can remember that. And Jumpstart, there were teachers from Intro to Law and all this other stuff. And they were going to tell us what to do. And. At the end of day two, we had the Nelson-Denny test. And the Nelson-Denny test was this test they made you take, and it was going to potentially be a predictor of your law school aptitude. And I had my results, and apparently I didn't do well on this test. And Dr. Wilson from the ARC, the Academic Resource Center, called me in with a bunch of other people. And the only way to describe Dr. Wilson, she was as brilliant as she was beautiful. And for those of you who know Dr. Wilson, you know where I'm going with that one. She had like this weird voice. And I'm not even a lawyer, but I know what makes good lawyers, and you don't have it. You're not cooly material. You are not cooly material. She told me that the educational system in New Jersey was not as good as the educational system in Michigan. She goes, and if I were you, I would go to a trade school. She says, maybe you'll be a good mechanic. Now, if you know me, because a mechanic would be far worse than almost anything in the world. I don't know what the hell to do. She says, what did you do before law school? I told her I was a bartender. And she said, the world needs bartenders. You should go back to Jersey and bartend. You'll never make it through law school. And I looked at her, and I started laughing. She said, I don't find this funny. You're the one that's going to go into financial aid debt. And I said, trust me, I'll get through Cooley. 
because my Nelson Denny test was not good, she made me take extra classes. She used to browbeat you. She was just a miserable person. When she left, when she retired, which is like my third year of law school, they were doing a collection for her. And I remember I said, can you break a nickel or not? And not too many people got the joke. Yeah, Patricia Wilson I despise. I had three classes at that point. Crim Law, Norman Fell, Torts with Charles Palmer, Contracts One with John Taylor. And I had study groups and intro to law on Friday night. So about week three, the union went on strike back in Jersey. And when I left, it wasn't going to be a strike. And the strike in 1999 lasted three days. This one started to drag on. And this one guy who was like a mentor to me, he remember he said to me, well, we're going to be on strike a while, so you should drop out of law school and come back home. Now, if I dropped out of law school, week three in or whatever, it would have financial aid debt. I don't know how long that strike was going to go on, so there was a lot of guilt put on me. So I just threw myself into my work. And first term of law school, a lot of bullshit. Instead of teaching students what's going to be on the final and how you're supposed to do things, they make you do these stupid briefs. And you spend so much time on these briefs as opposed to practicing multiple choice and writing essays. You know, you think you got to do these outlines and these briefs and that's what's really going to make you a good law student. So at Norman Fell and Krim, I went up to Fe Professor Fell my first day of class and I shook his hand. And I asked him about the Gary Gilmore case. Because the Gary Gilmore case always intrigued me. Gary Gilmore was the guy in the late 70s who killed um, Max Jensen and Ben Bushnell. And he got death. Penalty was death. Firing squad. And he actually brought the death penalty back to America. It was the Gary Gilmore case. And I thought this crim law professor I'm going to hit it off. And I put my hand out to shake it. He kind of ignored me. That was a sign of things that come with Norm Fell. Norman Fell would be my first term professor. And he would also be my advisor in the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project was my third year of law school. Um, I had him for crim law in my first term of law school. And I could tell you, first term third year or today, <clears throat> my opinion of Norm Fell is the same. I think he's somebody who likes to read his own press, even though he doesn't get a lot of press. I think he was a horrible professor. He gave me a D in crim law, and he couldn't read my handwriting, because I did pretty well in the multiple choice, and he just wouldn't read my handwriting, and he claims that he did. And he said to me, you'll never make as a criminal lawyer. You did lousy on my test, and I grade hard to get rid of the weak. And you're the weak. Okay. And it's kind of funny. With Fell, there's been times I wanted to email him. Because some of the shit he said to me throughout the years at Coley. Belittling me and say I didn't have what it took. Well, Normie. Check out the scoreboard, bro. Norm Fell, in my opinion, destroyed a lot of young lives. And he's a guy, in my opinion... That was a brutal professor because he couldn't cut it in the real world. Don't like the man. 
Never liked the man if he's watching it. I don't like you, bro. And I'll put my crim stats against yours any f***ing day of the week. You said I couldn't make it. You were f***ing wrong, dude. So wrong. Between you and some ass from New Jersey and Dr. Wilson, I almost f***ing thought about throwing in the towel. But it's good to be sitting here as you stalk my Facebook profile when I see under people you may know. And every time I win a case, I think a little bit about Norm Fell. Take that D and shove it up your ass. And any time you want to debate publicly on crim law, you let me know, bro. We'll do it live and sell f***ing tickets and eat popcorn. Remember he told me during my time the Innocence Project, I make too much work for everyone. Because you had to do 90 hours in the Innocence Project. That was your criteria. And I think I did like 382 hours. And a guy who was my roommate, who couldn't litigate his way of a wet paper bag, who did very little hours and lied about getting the hours he needed, fell thought he was a great lawyer. Great lawyer to be. Sometimes there's more than meets the eye. So I got a D in Crim. And I would retake Krim with another professor, one who actually knew and gave a shit about Krim law. We'll talk about that another time. For torts, Charles Palmer, good professor. Professor Palmer used to have the essays answer in four sentences or less. And you know, and torts is like, there's almost like, in my opinion, there's two subparts for your first term. There's intentional torts which is relatively easy, then you fall off the cliff with negligence. Negligence was a whole different ballgame. I thought Professor Palmer cared. Good professor. Then there was John Taylor for um, Contracts 1. Nice guy. Was his first term teaching. Didn't seem to know a lot, but he seemed to care. And no real problem with him. Study groups were interesting. Because you start to make a lot of different friends. Uh, I think my closest friend would be Brian Lorikey, who's still a close friend today. Brian was like a big brother. Was a retired New Jersey State Trooper. And Brian kind of took me under his wing. Helped me get a new apartment, move out of Washington Apartments. Like, he really looked out for me. And I don't think I would have been as successful in law school if it wasn't for Brian Lorikey. And certainly... My first term of law school was nothing to write home about. Bad time. And I remember I ended up on academic probation. And when you end up on academic probation, you don't get your financial aid till week nine. So you need to figure out how to survive. And back then, first termers got their grades back week one. Eventually, everybody got their grades back week four. So you're checking, checking, checking. And it was a D in Crim, C minus in Contracts 1, and a C in Contracts. And I was sitting on a 1.5 GPA. And I will say that I don't believe Fell read my essays. I don't think anybody really read them. My handwriting was so horrible. Uh, my multiple choice was good, but back then I couldn't type. You had to handwrite. Unless you got an accommodation. I remember I went through these bullshit tests to get an accommodation just to type. 
And when I could type and you could read what the hell I was writing, it's like, oh my god, he made some brilliant points. But here's something I learned moving forward. My first term, my multiple choice across the board was not great. I learned in Cooley and I learned on the bar exam that your multiple choice was like your first impression. The professors put the Scantron in and they knew what your role score was on the black letter law before they looked at your essays. So if you killed it on your multiple choice, you basically got to sign the cross on the essays. But I put more time in the essays first term. And if you did bad the multiple choice, your essays were like an uphill battle. My essays were pretty good, but you couldn't read my handwriting. So somebody like Norm Fell could potentially say, I'm not reading this shit. let's give the kid a D or an F, send them back home to New Jersey. So I was on academic probation, remember before finals, I got calls from people in Jersey rooting against me. Don't get my financial aid till week nine the next term. Walls seem to be falling apart. First term was really bad. Second term, Brian Largy helped me get an apartment. He made some calls and I paid to get an apartment at Village Green in Lansing. And Village Green will always have a special place in my heart because Village Green is where things start to turn around for me. I didn't have to worry about my sleeping conditions anymore. It made academics a lot easier. So I moved to a different apartment. I was able to type my essays. I voided my D. So I had a 1.75 because you had the 1.5 in um, contracts and the 2.0 in torts. And if you were under a 2.0, you had two terms to get over that 2.0 to get off academic probation. And I had to meet with Dr. Wilson and I was on academic probation. And she said, well, I told you you weren't going to make it through. So now I'm on a 1.75. I got two terms to get to that 2.0. I used my one void, and it was now or never. I already didn't get into Widener. Now I almost failed out my first term at Cooley, and I learned I had dysgraphia, which meant my handwriting, as anybody that knows me, was dreadful. So, second term was coming up, and in second term, we would have contracts too with Professor High. We would have Crim Lowell again, the remix. The Professor Grady Chessup, good man. And Torts 2 with Professor Mark Dotson, who became a favorite of mine in law school. And I knew at this point, guys, it really wasn't about two terms. I had to get over that 2.0 to really have some breathing room. So I had to kick ass that second term. A lot of pressure there. And I looked at the first term, like, based on my living conditions, and I found out mom was really sick, and things were hidden from me. So I was trying to go home and check on her, because she was dying of cancer, and she lingered around for a while. That's another story that happened during law school. Well, between mom, the living conditions, the drama in Jersey, Norm Fell, there's a lot of things working against me. I look back at first term, and I say, okay, well, first term was the beginning of whatever this is. We didn't know it already. It was time to fight. And fighting we would do. Alright, I'm Bill Amadeo. Have a good weekend.
The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.